We're excited about our move. We're excited about so many changes happening in the life of our church. Like we're transitioning so much that uh, you need to pray for us. Because, uh, you know, transitions are not good for me. Like I, I stress, I, I forget that God is sovereign for some reason and during transitions, you know what I mean? But it, there's a lot of unknowns that happen, um, you know, and it's like, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? Sometimes we just need to relax and trust that God is sovereign and in control. So pray for me on that and pray for some of us that are going through some transitions as well. I only had the Cooley family come up, and uh, they want to share with y'all a little something. Um, so if y'all can come up real quick. Cooley's in the house. Well, we ask that y'all just keep us in prayer. Because... <laughs> It is a blessed Father's Day, y'all. Come on. It is a blessed Father's Day. <laughs> we are expecting, so we just ask. We just ask that you guys keep this on the hush only for a few hours. Only for a few, and anyone that's watching right now, this is recorded. Yeah, that's why I said wait until later. That's why I said wait until later. It's all good. Yeah, so anyone that's watching right now, yes, you. Yeah, my family don't know yet. <laughs> they don't know yet because we're going to her family's right after this. So hopefully your family, your family don't watch our stream, do they? No. I don't think they do. They go, to, they go to their own church, so yeah, anyway. Yeah, I know. Today they would. I know this will be the day. Um, yes, keep us in prayer. Um, we, we will be expecting you. What are you, 10 weeks now? About 10 weeks, so. Yeah. Let's pray for them, saints. I want to pray for you, man. This is a blessing. So, Father, we thank you for the Cooley family. Everything that they mean to us, Lord, we thank you for uh, their family, for their love, uh, for their care over our lives. And we thank you for uh, the baby. And we thank you for the addition to their family, Lord. We thank you that you have blessed them, Lord. And I just pray, God, that you will give them strength, wisdom in this season. Uh, may they be drawn more, even closer to you in this time. And we pray, God, for the joy that's gonna happen in their family. And we pray that you will give Wayne wisdom to love his wife, Lord God, to care for her. And we pray for Tiffany to love her husband in this season. We pray for the kids, Lord God, to just enjoy this time. And God, give them everything they need, uh, physically, spiritually, mentally. God, give them what they need in this season. We love you and we thank you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I'm going to ask my wife to come up. We got it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, not here. I'm done with that. We we're free. We're going. We're going. Listen, we're going away, and we don't have to ask nobody permission. Like our kids could be home. So praise, <laughs> praise God, praise God. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. No, we're good. We're good. But it, that's a blessing, man. We're encouraged. We're so excited for y'all. 
and uh, you guys already know how it is, you know what I'm saying, to have a, a, a new baby in the church is just amazing to see life, to see the family come together, and so that's a blessing. So uh, we are in John chapter 21. Uh, we're wrapping up the Gospel of John today, and next week we're going to close John chapter 21 together as a church. We've been in the Gospel of John for the last two and a half years or so, uh, and uh, we are going to go through the Gospel, uh, through the book of James together. So be ready for that on our opening day, July 4th. God just knew when we needed to do what we needed to do. And it's amazing to see his sovereign hand at work in our lives. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14 is our text. And I'll be reading starting verse 1. After this, it says, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Lord, to you be the glory and honor. And may you open up our eyes and our ears that we would hear and even see and understand your word. God, help us to understand what we are reading. We are reading your word. And the understanding of your word is a miracle. There are some that understand God and receive life from your word. There are some that are darkened in their understanding and are bored at your word. So God, would you help us in our hearts? Would you stir a desire to hear what you have to say. And so God, help us. Help us, Lord God, not to be distracted from our hearts, which can be very deceiving. But Lord, help us to be drawn in by your spirit. It's only by your sovereign hand we can understand anything. 
And God, will you be gracious and extending grace to those who have need of salvation today. And for those of us who have come to saving faith, bring correction, training in righteousness, Lord God. Uh, help us to turn away from that which still binds us. Uh, those sins that so easily beset us. God, would you draw us close to you who are holy and pure and righteous. May we be like the prophet, Lord God, falling at our face, knowing that we are <laughs> that we have unclean lips and dwell in a land of unclean lips. Would you help us, Lord God, to know that the gospel is the coal that you laid to our lips and made us clean? Would you help us to be those, Lord God, that live unto your glory? Help us. We love you and we thank you. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. So last week we covered verses 30 and 31, just two verses, by the way, in chapter 20. And verse 30 tells us that Jesus did many signs that were not recorded in his gospel account. In fact, the gospel of John, if you didn't know, has the least amount recorded of the other gospels. Matthew has 33 recorded miracles. Luke has 31. Mark has 27. And the Gospel of John actually only has 10. So we spoke of the various miracles recorded that included Jesus providing and how he was able to supersede nature. We also talked about how Jesus healed people, how he was able to heal the lame and even those that were blind. And he also raised someone from the dead. So we noted that the reason for Jesus performing these miracles was to show that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Because God had anointed him to proclaim the good news to the poor. God sent him to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who were captive in their sin. To recover sight for the blind and to set at liberty those who were oppressed. That's why he came. So this coming from the prophet Isaiah, actually, who prophesied about Jesus, he spoke about the Messiah that was to come. And Jesus in Luke 4 opened up the scriptures and talked about that very same prophecy that spoke about the Messiah to come. And Jesus said, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the purpose of the miracles was, in fact, to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and that he was the son of God. That was the purpose of even writing this gospel account. John is clearly telling us why he wrote this account in verse 31 of John 20. We're still there. If you just go back a little bit in John chapter 20, verse 31, it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's the reason and the purpose of this book. It's to believe two things about Jesus, that he's the Christ and that he is the Son of God. So Jesus, the Christ, meaning that Jesus was anointed. He was the anointed one from God. And Jesus, the Son of God, meaning that Jesus himself was God, the Son, who was sent from the Father. And this belief is so important that John wrote in John 3.36 that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there's two people here. You either fall on the side of believing that Jesus is the son and you have eternal life or you don't obey the son. You have not even seen life and the wrath of God remains on you. 
we had asked a couple questions last week that had to do with this very point. What is the result of believing this about Jesus being the Son of God and the Christ? What should happen as a result of believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? What has been the evidence in our lives of this truth that we profess to believe? Well, the second half kind of tells us what happens to those of us who actually believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In verse 31 of John 20, the second half, it says, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So it's not enough to say you believe. I want to know what in your life exudes that belief. Are you living it out? Has it affected and impacted your life? So to believe means to trust, to rely on, to have confidence in. Have you lived that way? To believe is to feel sure, to have conviction that something is true. Do you have conviction in your life? To believe is to accept something as true, genuine, and real. Do you walk around like it's real? Or is this something that you kind of do on Sundays? Like we always talk about. Like I love Sundays. I love coming to church. But church don't save nobody. Now, some of y'all need to come to church more, I'm just saying. Don't get it twisted. Church is good. But when you have life in his name, there should be evidence of that profession of faith. So to trust, to rely on, to have confidence in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, is to have life. To feel sure that Jesus is true, accepting him as true, genuine, and real, is to have life. To think and believe on the truth of who he is is to have life. So what does life in his name look like? Well, we answered that last week. It looks like what it looked like in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, we saw lives that spoke of Jesus as the light of men. We saw those that valued eternal life. We saw those that treated the, the perishable things as perishable. And they lived for the imperishable things, for the things that they could not see that were promised. We should show how we have been satisfied by the water that quenches the longings of the heart, like in John 4. We should live lives that reveal how the dead are raised to life. Man, church should not be a place where there's dead people. Some of y'all might have, you know, that, that, that are still new to us, might have seen how exuberant we are in our worship. That's because, yo, we're, Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know if you heard, but he actually rose from the dead. I've been to some services. It's like, dang, can I raise my hand? You know, I need some coffee in here. <laughs> we should live lives, right, that speak of the dead being raised. We should bear witness of the Christ and not confuse that with just head knowledge. Jesus dealt with that in the Gospel of John. He also dealt with people with untethered experiences, meaning that experientially they thought, or even culturally they thought they were of faith. But Jesus said, no, you're of your father, the devil. So it's not about head knowledge. It really is about saving knowledge. Our passage today takes us to the disciples who were fishing. Not for men, but for what they were used to doing prior to Jesus calling them. Very interesting. If belief in Jesus is life in his name, then that would have meant that life in his, life in his name should have some evidence of that call. 
And to me, it seems like that the disciples here needed Jesus to call them again so that they would not only have life in his name, but that they would also remember the calling and the commission given to them by our Lord. See, having life in his name demands that you live out not just what you believe, but what you're called to do. So our outline today, real quick, the disciples fishing in verses 1 through 3. That's the first point. The second point, the disciples visited, verses 4 through 9. And the third point, the disciples fed, verses 10 to 14. So the first point, the disciples fishing, verses 1 and 3. The disciples visited, verses 4 and 9. And lastly, the third point, the disciples fed in verses 10 to 14. So the Sea of Tiberias, uh, it's actually uh, about 76 miles north from where Jesus was crucified. So it's a little far off. If you want an idea, it's kind of like walking from here to Allentown. You ever been to Allentown, PA? If you drove up there, can you imagine walking there? I can't. Um, <laughs> 70 miles, that's a day's journey north from where Jesus was crucified. The Sea of Tiberias was actually the Sea of Galilee. It's the same sea. And uh, we actually see this in verse 2, uh, where Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together there at the Sea of Galilee. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And the question I had was, out of the seven disciples that were there, we know at least three of them were fishing, and one of them was from the region. Simon Peter was there, and we know that Jesus called him in Matthew chapter 4. You know, Peter was a fisherman. Thomas, called the twin, was there in our text. We don't know too much about Thomas. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Cana was west from where they were in our text. We're not sure uh, about Nathaniel. The son of Zebedee, James, also was called by Jesus in Matthew 4. He was also there in the sea fishing. Also, John in Matthew 4 was called also. He was also fishing as well. Then there were two other disciples we don't have their names to, but I think it's possible that they were Andrew and Philip, in my opinion, since Peter was the brother of Andrew and Philip, who was also there in the region, who was called from that very same region in John chapter 1. So here we see that most of the disciples went back to where they were. And they were doing the work that they were doing prior to when Jesus called them. It's very interesting. In Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22, you see this encounter where Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew. And he said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And then they immediately left their boats and followed him. And then he also saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they also left their boat to follow him. And it says they, followed, they immediately left their boats. The Gospel of John tells us that they left the boat immediately and they followed him. And Jesus said that they would be fishers of men. Yet we see them back to what they were doing before. And that night when they were fishing, they caught nothing. Uh, you know, me, I, I was looking at the text. I'm like, maybe God was making a point. They were fishermen by trade. So they knew how to fish. 
and he caught nothing. Maybe it was because he weren't called to be fishers of fish. You know, when God ain't feeling it, it's not going to happen. It seems that they went back to what they were familiar with, right? They left everything to follow Jesus, and now they were right back to what they left. It seems that they needed the voice of Jesus to call them again to what he called them to, which actually happens in verses 4 through 9, and then we're going to camp ourselves in verses 4 through 9, which is our second point, the disciples visited. And notice in verses 4 through 9 that Jesus called them children. In verse 5, he said, children, do you have any fish? Jesus, when speaking about the people of Israel, actually spoke of them as children. Example, in Matthew 23, 37, where he was lamenting over Jerusalem, you remember that? He called the people of God children. And in Mark 7, where the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus begging that he would cast out a demon out of her daughter, check out what Jesus said in, Matthew, in Mark 7, 27 to her. He said, let the children be fed first. God's people, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus did address the corporate covenant people of God as children. But then he talks to the disciples as children. And I don't know about you, I'm a grown man. <laughs> if somebody called me, yo, you know, like a child, wouldn't that be a demeaning term? But he did call them children in John, actually, chapter 13. It wasn't the first time he did this. John 13, verses 31 through 35, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glory him at once. Then he says in verse 33 of John 13, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, where I am going, you cannot come. So it seems that the disciples here in our text had not yet known that this was Jesus, and he called them children, I believe, for a reason. So even when calling them children, which he did in John 13, they still didn't know that it was Christ. Jesus said to them, children, do you have fish? And they answered him, no. Then what happens is a miracle in verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now listen, this is one of the miracles recorded in John, in the Gospel of John. And it's not coincidental. Remember that Jesus multiplied, he multiplied fish in John 6. You remember that? Jesus took five barley loaves and two fish and fed how many people? 5,000 people. This was, again, a miraculous act that would be counted in the Gospel of John. They caught nothing, and then he says, throw it on the right side, and now they can't even pull the net into the boat. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, after this happened, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. So John, the disciple who Jesus loved, the author of this book, was the first to see that it was Jesus who stood at the shore. 
And in the previous chapter, we saw that it was John who first believed. If you remember, at the tomb, when he actually said he outran Peter, he was the first one that actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Remember that during this night, they caught nothing. They were fishermen by trade, and they caught nothing. But then all of a sudden, the man at the shore who calls them children tells them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat, and they did, and they were not even able to haul in the fish that they caught. And then John saw that it was Jesus Christ. Then when Simon heard that it was Jesus, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Then in verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off, which actually would be 300 feet away from the shore. Then in verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. That's a good breakfast. I'm telling you, like Wayne talked about waking up in the morning to some good breakfast. I'd rather have Jesus make me breakfast, right? He'll make it right. I'm not saying Tiff ain't making breakfast right. Don't get that twisted. I'm not disrespecting. I'm just saying if it was, you know, anybody else in Christ, I'd rather have Christ make me breakfast, that's for sure. But here was, here was Jesus setting up breakfast for his disciples. Now listen, this is kind of full circle here. Like, this is where he called them. I will make you fishers of men. They went back to fishing for fish. He could have said, what are you doing? But he's making breakfast for them. Not only was this full circle when it comes to their call, when he called them to be fishers of men, but this charcoal fire in place is also interesting. Because it's full circle for Peter also. I think the smell of charcoal fire in the air probably reminded Peter of his betrayal in John 18. You remember when Jesus was arrested and taken to see Annas and Caiaphas? You remember that? Peter stood outside of the door to where Jesus was taken. It was there where Peter would deny Jesus three times. And after denying Jesus the first time, verse 18 of John 18 says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. Then if you go down to verse 25 and 27 of John 18, it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You're, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. So Peter, in his denial of Jesus, was warming himself by the charcoal fire, denying Jesus three times. And here was Jesus with the charcoal fire making breakfast. But it wasn't to warm them. It was to feed them. You know, I was thinking, too, how this could have been a, a, a really good illustration for those of us to actually get to get back to someone. Be like, you remember when you dissed me three times? 
Jesus could have easily done that. Could have talked about how maybe, you know, Peter should have been the man of God at that point. But yet, Jesus knew he would betray him. That's why he said, you're going to do it three times before the rooster crows. But you know what? Jesus doesn't blame Peter for anything here. Instead, he appears to them. He miraculously provides for them. And he prepares a meal for them. Now, I was thinking, listen, what Jesus could have said to Peter at that point, or to the disciples, what are you guys doing here? But what a gracious Savior we have. What a patient Savior we have. He didn't go on a blame game. He didn't say, you guys failed. He didn't say, what are you doing out here? I called you out of here. And you're back to where you were called from. He didn't do any of that. He made breakfast for them. What a great Savior, man. I was reading this. I was just like, wow. He could have said that they failed at being fishers of men, that they went back to what they were used to, but instead, our Lord feeds them. We really do not know what led the disciples here to go back to what they were used to. We don't have a lot of information, but what we do know is that their calling was not to be fishers of fish. <laughs> they were called to be fishers of men. And that is the high calling of us as believers today. In fact, it's what we're called to do here in the city of Lancaster. Especially when moving into this new building where there are neighbors now. Do you understand the field and the harvest we're going into? You will ever wonder why the devil's so active now? Well, we're going into his field with the message that makes dead people alive. <laughs> with people that need the gospel. So being fishers of people who do not have faith in Christ is the work of what we call an evangelist, right? So not everyone is called to be an evangelist. I'm not saying you should have a bullhorn out there and signs and all that. That's not what I'm saying, but we should all be doing the work of an evangelist. So Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he said, as for you, always be sober-minded. It's interesting he says sober-minded. That's what he uh, Peter talked about in 1 Peter 5, to be sober-minded because of the roaring lion seeking to devour, right? To be sober-minded, endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist. He says, fulfill your ministry. So we're talking about the work ethic of the church, which is evangelism for the glory of God. It was the calling of the disciples, but they went back to what they were used to. They went back to from where they were called. And saints, I'm I'm telling you, we can't afford to make that mistake ourselves. Jesus has empowered us to do the work necessary to be witnesses who have come to saving faith. Sharing the love of God to the world is our calling. Now, I was expecting like some of y'all may be feeling overwhelmed by that call. Some might be asking, how can I do more than what I'm doing already in my life? I got an eight hour, 10 hour job. What are you talking about? I could barely get home. Well, this is where you're making the mistake here. Like, it's not about doing. It's about being. Okay, so God's not telling his disciples, here's a list, and I want you to do this. He's asking them, in a sense, like he told Peter later on, we'll get into this, do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
he, he's really questioning their, really their identity, their, their call. The work of the ministry is not a to-do list. The work of the ministry really is being a Christian. So it's not about going out and doing. You know, Jesus already warned us about that, how there were people that said, hey, we rebuked all these demons. We did the work of the ministry. And he said, I never knew you. You can do all that. You can look Christian. You can do Christian all day. It's not about doing Christianity. It's about being a follower of Jesus. It's about loving the Lord. It's about having conviction. It's about being broken over your sin. It's about being broken over the lost. It's about when you fail, you go to God and ask for forgiveness. That's what it's about. It's authenticity. God's never asked us to be completely perfect because that will never happen. When he calls us to be perfect, like he is perfect, we rely on Jesus who was perfect. That's how that works. That's how that works. It's not about walking perfectly before our God. We know we can't. But relying on Christ who has already, especially when we fail, especially when we're tempted. So this call to be fishers of men is not about doing. It really is about being the church. If we are, in fact, followers of Christ, then what should follow that description is fruit in our lives. Fruit bearing is how we share the gospel to the world as the church. Not all of you are called to hit the streets and the corners. But everyone is called to be Christian. So for the disciples, their calling wasn't to be fishers of fish, and neither it is for us. We are not called to do the work that only focuses on the earthly. We are called to fix our gaze upon God's glory, which is the engine and heart of our work here in the city of Lancaster. To worship God is the ultimate goal of fishing, sharing the gospel to all of man. That's why we're here, saints. John Piper says this in his book, uh, in his book on missions. I forgot the name of the book. Um, but he says this quote, and I think he's right. Piper says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. End quote. So the disciples went back to what they were used to, but Jesus again caused them not to punish them for being fishers of fish, which they went back to, but rather he feeds them and he cares for them. He's reminding them of who they are in him. So this is full circle right here where they were first called to be his disciples. And now in a simple visit by him, he calls them and provides for them and feeds them, which is our last point. The disciples fed. In verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Verse 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although they were so many. The net was not torn. I would argue that's another miracle. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
So it went from John knowing to Peter knowing to the disciples knowing. This was Jesus who was tortured, marred, crucified, and put to death. He was before them again. And according to verse 14, this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to them. And not only did Jesus provide for them the miracle of catching fish, like I pointed out already, the miracle that the net didn't break was also something significant. He told them to catch those fish, and they barely could bring it in. And he even, as he already does, holds all things together. He held that thing together. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus called them to follow him and that he would make them fishers of men. We see that in Matthew 4.19, and they went back to be fishermen, to be fishers of fish. But here in his appearing, saints, listen, Jesus gave them all all they needed. And it wasn't a to-do list again. You know what they needed most? Was to see Jesus. This might sound too simple for you. But really, I was telling somebody the other day, man, like, maybe the complications of our lives come from not seeing him for who he is. Having an encounter with God, having an encounter with Jesus. Because I I tell you, I've ran into this Jesus and I've never been the same. I've tried to run from this Jesus and he had a funny way of bringing me right back to him. I've seen this savior and and kind of like when I look at the world and as enticing as the world can be, nothing can compare to what I saw, to who I saw. This is what we need to be fishers of men, to have a genuine encounter with Christ, which actually is the greatest miracle of all. See, before Jesus was portrayed and arrested, he gave them the Passover meal where he broke bread and gave it to them. You remember? And here we see Jesus again calling them to have a meal with him again. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus revealing himself, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is all we need. It's all they needed. The visit from Jesus is what the disciples needed, and we do see them in the book of Acts living out what they encountered. They were so afraid of dying. Remember, they locked the doors up for fear of the Jews. What do we see in the book of Acts? Unashamed men that were afraid preaching publicly and getting arrested, being tortured for their faith, being rejected, Paul being stoned, Peter being threatened with death, being killed. And these men died and laid down their lives for the Savior that they saw. Listen, this is what we need for this city. We don't need a to-do list of things that need to be done. No doubt they need to be done. You know, I'm believing that the house next door from our church, we're going to buy that house. We're going to change that into a transitional 
housing for people to get from homelessness to actually getting jobs, right? We want, we want, we, we've already helped single mothers, right? That needed, they had nowhere to go. We need to have our own crib, right? To, so that they can go to and get discipled. Because we're not just about just, you know, running our mouths. We want to be hands. We want to serve people. So we want to do that. But listen, that's, that's meaningless apart from the reality of who Jesus is. We do that so that we can share the gospel with them, so that they can see Jesus in our lives. So we do want to be hands-on, but it comes from an encounter with Christ. To remember that he is always with us. The author of Hebrews in 13.5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, author of Hebrews is giving you the reason, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's where contentment comes from. That's where freedom from the love of money comes from. That's where we actually guard ourselves from the enticements of the world to know him and to be content with the fact that he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. As a matter of fact, that's what he told his disciples. I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. So no to-do list here, saints. It's all about Jesus. We desire for, uh, to glorify the Lord in our efforts here. The disciples here forgot that call. Jesus had to go back to them and remind them of their call. And that was the thrust enough for them to actually do what they did in the book of Acts. It's the same for us today, saints. So don't feel the pressure of doing. But I would encourage you and actually apply pressure on you to be the church. That means you, you're to be a good father to your family. Do it for the glory of God. A mother, do it for the glory of God. We need mothers and fathers in the church. We need genuine saints in the church. So that's our text today, saints. I hope it encourages you today. I hope it, it actually stirs in your heart to be courageous, to be strong in your faith, to remember that Jesus is enough, that the world doesn't need uh, to-do list from us to do. It needs the church to be the church. Let's be the church. Father, we thank you. We ask that you will be with us. We thank you that you have shown again your gracious mercy, even to the disciples in our text, as you do today. God, help us to be your church. Help us to be the church. Help us to be content, to be about your glory, um, not to switch efforts for the temporal, but Lord, help us to have a work ethic for the eternal, to seek your glory. Help us to be a faithful church. God, we're moving into this building, and if more people are added, would you preserve our faithfulness? Will you preserve our fellowship? Would you remind us that we are to be fishers of men? Not to go back to what we're used to, but help us, Lord, to know that we have seen your glory. Through the gospel being preached to us, we have come to saving faith. Will you preserve us unto glory? We need you, Father, to, to do the things that we're called to do. Lord, I pray for marriages. I pray for single people. I pray, God, for all of us who have experienced and just... <laughs> 
crazy circumstances in our lives. Help us to persevere. Help us to be content. Help us to know, God, that you've appeared to us through the gospel. Preserve us in the faith. Stir in our hearts joy when the world around us is falling apart. Even in our homes, even in our families, Father, whatever it is that's causing us great weight on us. Help us to cast our weight on you. To know that there's freedom in Jesus. So, Lord, help us to be free. Help us to be clear-minded. Help us to even have a sense of heaviness for the lost. They do need saved. God, as we move to Caroline Street, preserve us to be the church, to be the salt of the earth and the city set on the hill. We love you, Father, and we thank you that you are king. You are the head of this church. We are but lambs, Lord God, and you're leading us. Your rod and your staff comfort us, and you'll always take us to good pasture. Your discipline is good. It is it speaks of your love towards us. It hurts, but it's good. But Lord, show us again to respond in a manner of worship and not rebelliousness. Not going back to the things that we have been used to, that you've called us out of. Help us to be fishers of men. We love you and we thank you. And all of God's people said,